The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hey, Jack. Hey, Zach. How's it going, man? Good. Feels good to be back in the the Bay as much as I love Vegas and seeing you. uh, It's nice to be home. Yeah, I, I can relate but you're still there. That I am. Uh, and having a nice time. <laughs> yeah. But there's no place like home, as they say. Anyways, that's not an interesting conversation. We're going to proceed with what is an interesting conversation. Zach, would you do the honor of introducing our fantastic guest? Yeah. Uh, so this is someone who I met for the very first time, uh, actually within the week. He is the head of business development for a large mining operation. He goes by J Boss and Jesse Fassenberg. How are you doing today, Jesse? I am doing just fine. It's great to hear you guys talk again. Likewise, man. Yeah, so I uh, was told that we could be uh, having some really interesting conversation today about consensus mechanisms, specifically proof of stake, proof of work, delegated proof of stake, and maybe we could get into talking about 51% attacks and even some 1% attacks in proof-of-stake systems. How's that How's it sound with you guys? That sounds fantastic. Um, yeah, how about you give uh, us and the listeners an overview of kind of the kind of the different main systems, like proof-of-work, proof-of-stake, delegated proof-of-stake? Absolutely. So conventionally, in a proof-of-work system that is most notably used with Bitcoin and some other uh, SHA-256 encrypted coins, uh, basically... It's all based on hash power. You are able to attain a certain amount of hash power. And what that means is if you control more than 51% of the hashing power or greater on a network, you effectively control the network and are effectively able to double spend and go back to previous blocks and change them. Now, gaining 51% control is a pretty difficult feat, especially when the network is so large you know, and robust as with Bitcoin. What's really fascinating about that is it sort of creates a system where being a good actor or someone who is using their hash power to facilitate transactions is typically more profitable than being a bad actor and attempting to double spend or even fork uh, the cryptocurrency. So there's a bunch of very interesting systems that can arise. And I think a lot of it actually has to do with human nature. You see, in a proof of work system, guys, I think it all boils down to self-interest. 
do we use our hash power to secure the chain and possibly you know solve math functions where we are able to effectively use more and more hash power and really convert electricity into facilitating and validating transactions on a decentralized network? Or do we go to work on some other chain or even something else altogether? And these are what I like to call extrinsic choices. This creates um, a rather interesting mirror into human nature through economic linkage, through external actors. And what I mean by that is the question is, you know, in cryptocurrency, the longest chain is the truest chain. Do you stay true to the longest chain? I don't know if you guys have yeah. <laughs> what I just said. I know that's a, it's a wordful. <laughs> Practically speaking, Jesse, you know, and this is kind of one of the, one of the questions Jack and I were talking about that, that made us want to ask you in the podcast, which is like, let's say I was a bad actor. Let's say I was, you know, the U.S. or China or some cabal of bankers that were very much <laughs> against Bitcoin. And we had a lot of capital and we wanted to kind of destroy the Bitcoin network and, you know, double spend our asses off. How would we go about doing it? And what would be kind of the capital requirements? That's a very interesting question. Before I go about answering that question, I'm sure most of your viewers know what what ASIC hardware is. Um, But for those that don't, ASIC hardware is highly specialized hardware that is used in in the case of Bitcoin and and Bitcoin-based mining algos uh, to create a situation where the first miner or person contributing their hash power to the network uh, to validate the transactions in a block is rewarded with a predetermined amount of Bitcoin. Uh, This process really creates a pretty difficult barrier to entry, um, especially in the case of something like a 51% attack where it is practically, and I'll use the word practically uh, loosely here, it is practically impossible for a miner to possess more computing resources than 51% of the miners in the group. This basically protects the network from a whale, you know, who could just come in and attempt to uh, bully his way into controlling the network. To give you some realistic numbers, as of right now, with Bitcoin, I think you you would need around 60,000 pentahashes per second to conduct a 51% attack. And I think that would cost around half a million dollars for a one-hour attack, which would be absolutely useless because you would be losing money in terms of block discovery. And I don't know how familiar you guys are with, with uh, NiceHash. It's basically a service that connects cloud mining contract service where you can, or hash power service, I should say, where you can lease power from someone. Bitcoin is only currently about 1% nice hashable, which is extremely low, meaning there's not even enough power to take over uh, 1% of the network. You compare that to something like Ethereum Classic, where the number is actually closer to 80%, and the attack cost on Ethereum Classic is only 15 terahashes. Although it should be noted that Ethereum is SHA-3 based and is ASIC resistant, which is really just a fancy way of saying it's a bit more memory intensive than CPU. Mm -hmm. And because there's no ASICs, the hash power needed is an order of magnitude less. So it's measured in mega hashes per second instead of terahashes per second. It's exponentially easier. (laughs) Cool. So before we kind of move on to Ethereum, Jesse, you were saying how it's 60,000 pentahash Around 60,000 pentahashes. To do a one-hour attack, but that would be ineffective? What what amount would be effective? That sort of starts to open up some more philosophical questions, which might actually bring more questions than answers. If you were to have billions of dollars 
And if we, if I pull up Coin Market Cap, let's see, let's see what Bitcoin is currently currently trading at. Bitcoin has a 108 billion dollar market cap. We don't even need to get into the fact that I think a lot of wallets are long lost and the velocity is gone, and there's a lot of uh, forced hodlers out there. Uh, 108 billion dollars is, is quite a bit. Definitely puts it up there with some of the top currencies and fiat currencies in the world. Why would you spend billions of dollars in hardware, in in hosting, in in servering, to fork a currency where you then ruin one of the three biggest pillars of crypto? The three pillars of crypto, in my mind, are decentralization, scalability, and security. And we could throw a fourth in there, which is immutability. Now, my question is, why would any entity with billions of dollars, where these are highly you know, illiquid markets where you could fill entire order books with buys and sells and manipulate the market into making incredible amounts of money, we've already seen it being done. Why would you render your currency useless? by bringing up its innate immutability into conflict and into question by trying to schedule a 51% attack. Because you, your monetary system or your banking system is threatened by the currency. So you believe, and, and I'm just playing you know, devil's advocate here because I, I talk with people about this all the time. You believe that utilizing billions of dollars, I, I can't give an exact value, but I could say that to commit to an ongoing fork where people don't even realize that they're mining on a false chain would be incredibly expensive, you know, unfathomably expensive. I'd love to talk about what happened with Verge, but we can we can talk about that a bit later. Basically, you would be rendering your computer or your currency's tender completely useless. And the question is, does a banking system that would spend five, ten, or twenty, if not more, billions of dollars into quote unquote ruining Bitcoin's legitimacy, would that be a worthwhile expenditure? Do you guys think it might be? I personally don't think it would. Well, I think that the issue you run into is the fact that people can move from chain to chain. Now, if you're destroying billions of dollars of wealth at a time in the crypto community, then perhaps it would be a more effective dissuader. But I think considering the somewhat prohibitive cost and also just the sheer immorality of it. <laughs> I yeah. think uh, it's quite unlikely for you know anyone to be attempting a 51% attack purely in you know a self-interested way. You know, perhaps in maybe a more evil genius or not evil genius, but just maniacal supervillain type of way. <laughs> just a Machiavellian uh, perspective. I think that from a philosophical roundtable and when we wear our tinfoil hats and think about these things, it's fun to think about. It's definitely fun to think about. I think ultimately the simplest answer to that is that even, you know, at half a million or a million dollars for, for one hour um, or billions of dollars for an ongoing attack, there are actually some innate philosophical barriers that the that actor will encounter. And the first is that the attack will have to last a lot longer than an hour or a day, uh, but it can't last too long either. Because at some point, either the developers or the currency, it's, you know, which is the currency or the block producers and, and other um, blockchains examples will deploy a fix um, or the price of the currency will just fall so much that the attack is no longer profitable. Basically, the attacker can fool the system into thinking was backlogged by changing the timestamp. 
And in response to this perceived backlog, this can make the algorithms easier to solve. That's sort of what happened with Verge. An even more terrifying thought than you know, just examining the implications surrounding a 51% attack is the fact that with Verge, which is widely considered to be one of the biggest 51% attacks in recent history, the exploiter was actually able to manipulate timestamps on three separate occasions that allowed him to be the sole individual that was mining these fraudulent blocks. This isn't a 51% attack that people classically talk about, and it's maybe even slightly irrelevant to debate whether it's a 51% attack or not. But the fact is that someone made off like a bandit needing only a small fraction of the network's hash power, which is terrifying. You know, it was performed by someone who could use uh, almost no no percentage of hash power just on the coding error. So there's so many things that people will attribute to words like 51% attacks. Um, a lot of it ties into the fact that if code is not perfect, humans are already imperfect and are definitely, I mean, we're all assuming everyone's a rational actor here. We're all attempting to maximize our own self-interest. And that's why I'm actually a much bigger proponent of proof of stake mechanisms. Um, I think that when you look at a conventional blockchain and you look at hash pointers, which have been around for quite some time in the form of Merkle tree data, the longer the chain gets, the more past blocks you're going to have to reference, the more energy intensive it becomes. We don't even have to get into environmental implications, but also, you know, the more difficult I think it becomes to eventually rationalize committing to a 51% attack. I think sometimes these chains are so long. I mean, look at what Bitcoin Cash did. Look at what happened even with the SegWit and SegWit 2x debacles, where people lost a lot of faith in the community surrounding that. Um, when you have these splits or even non-contentious hard forks, or God forbid, a 51% attack in the conventional sense with crypto, we attack the credibility of the blockchain, which is the whole point that I think we're all into this for, right? The innate decentralization surrounding the blockchain. I mean, Visa can peak at 65,000 transactions per second. And right now, a blockchain that is not sharded or doesn't have you know, any uh, sort of lightning network implications, which we could talk about you know, some other time, is peaking at around seven in Bitcoin. There's a lot of facets to this that I think we have to observe. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should... Definitely transition to talking more about Ethereum since the direction we want the conversation to go in is roughly around, you know, what is the lowest market cap for Ether, you know, that allows Ethereum to be resistant to attacks on the network? That is a great question. My innate feeling is that it's as someone who has been observing Ethereum for several years now and has, you know, I've bought in at many different price points, some of which I'm not, I'm not too proud about. Um, I'm still very bullish on Ethereum um, increasing in value. And I do believe that it really does ultimately sort of fall back into a more philosophical perspective, aside from just a sheer monetary glimpse at all this. To answer your question directly, Obviously, the more money in the system and the more capital, especially before Ethereum transitions into a proof-of-stake, post-proof-of-work role, I should say, developers don't want to spend millions and millions of dollars, um, years working on a project just to create a dApp that is on an unadapted network that has a low market cap that you know might be uncongested, but not due to actual you know scaling solutions, but due to lack of use. I think that it's sort of a cart before the horse. In order for Ethereum to go up, Ethereum needs to work on scalability. 
And I'm actually pretty content with sharding and Casper and long-term solutions, long-term off-chain solutions. I think that Ethereum could fall quite a bit for now. And people will continue from a non-monetary perspective to develop on it. But if it falls too much, I think if it were to hit 60 to $70, maybe around that and be reflective in the market cap, I think a lot of developers will get scared and start looking for alternatives. But unfortunately for competition and fortunately for Ethereum users, I really think that the first mover advantage and team behind the Ethereum Alliance is so robust and so vast that I don't really believe in EOS or their delegated proof of stake block producers where they could commit a 66% attack, which we could talk about later. And I don't really believe in some other networks like, like NEO or even going back to EOS, people that attempt to solve uh, scalability before decentralization, which I mean, we already have scaled centralized services like Visa. I'm sorry that it's such a roundabout answer. I'm actually just sort of thinking out loud here. Yeah, so, so I guess what we're, we definitely understand that like with a proof of stake system, the market cap likely has to be a lot higher to be resistant against attacks to the network. But based on your understanding of how proof of work on Ethereum is now and how that relates to the market cap, what would the market cap need to be under the way it currently works to be resistant against attacks to the network? And Jack and I are curious if that's, you know, I, we imagine the market cap right now is much higher than that. So kind of curious, what's kind of that minimum minimum number in your view? Give you some um, actual numbers using the ETH hash algo and assuming it's a $20.7 billion market cap, you would need a hash rate at the moment of around 230 terahashes per second to commit to a one-hour attack, which would cost around $150,000. Now, the whole issue with Ethereum and replay protection and Vitalik's you know, cult of personality in general is that, especially after the DAO, there can be no more you know, forking of Ethereum chains. I personally, if Ethereum were to fork another time, would most likely sell all of my Ethereum. I, I do believe that the DAO hack, and you know, it was so early in Ethereum's inception, I think it accounted for around 15% of Ethereum when there was almost no adaption, adoption is that we had to do it to instill confidence in the network. But in doing that, in, in, in replaying the block and forking it and pretending that attack had never happened, we questioned the immutability. We questioned one of the holy covens of crypto. I think if Ethereum were to fall to an $8 or $9 billion market cap, that would be staggering. That would be a terrible blow to Ethereum. Right now, um, Around 5% of Ethereum's hash rate is, is nice hashable, meaning could be collocated and paid for in paid mining services. Now, it's really hard to compare that to Bitcoin, mostly because Ethereum is still ASIC resistant. So it's still a, magner, a magnitude of terahashes and not pentahashes. But the really interesting thing that people have to understand is that in a proof of stake system, which is what Ethereum is attempting to transition to, you commit to validating and maintaining the rules. It's really that simple. Before we move on to proof of stake, I just kind of want to get a sense of this minimum market cap number. So the, the numbers you shared were that it would cost about 150000 to do a one-hour attack, but a one-hour attack wouldn't actually be a threat to the network. And that's given the current market cap. How many hours would it take to actually be a threat to the network? And yeah, we can use the current market cap numbers, or you can kind of hypothesize what the market cap would kind of at minimum need to be. 
to kind of be resisted against these attacks? Well, there's a number of possible solutions. And I think in terms of an actual number, you know, this attack cost doesn't include the block rewards that the miner would receive for mining. In this case, you know, that could be extremely significant and could reduce the attack by, you know, 50 or 60 percent. I think that the truth of the matter is that I couldn't really quantify without without feeling remiss. I couldn't really quantify an actual numerical value. I think that anyone who would commit a million dollars to attempting to double spend the Ethereum network, I think you'd be sort of stupid in order to do that. Because ultimately, even a 10-hour attack wouldn't put that much of a dent in the system, and you would make much more money by just playing along. I believe banks are, I mean, if, we, if we're looking even short-term and long-term, banks are in the business of making money. I don't think right now a bank, any bank is confident enough to possibly devote, you know, five or $10 billion of, of, of customer money into doing this hypothetical attack. So what you're so what you're saying, Jesse, is that kind of attacks at almost any market cap just wouldn't be profitable relative to just mining. The whole issue is that if an attack were to fall, if if the market cap of a currency were to fall to a point where it would be feasible to commit an attack, there's already this innate question of why are you attacking it then? If a it's fallen so much from ATH, and b we can look at coins such as Verge that have that are still uh, working after being uh, 51% attacked. And I just don't see the value in someone doing that. If, if, you, if you were attempting to discredit blockchain or you view blockchain as such a threat to your business model, I think spending money on lobbying, advertising, and global tactically calculated campaigns would be far more effective. I think it's sort of a perfect storm analogy. I think you would literally need someone with a high degree of stupidity, a high degree of contempt, a high degree of technological understanding, uh, which doesn't mutually coincide with the first two attributes, and a large degree of finances to commit something like this. I don't see that being feasible, simply put. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just to summarize, when everyone is following their economic incentives, proof-of-work systems are highly secure against 51% of attacks because those attacks just are unlikely to be profitable. Would that be a good summary of I think the conversation on this so far? Nowadays, it is less profitable. It used to be more profitable. When crypto was uh, was a bit less mature, which is sort of ironic because these markets are still so immature, it is definitely possible for someone to conceive of the idea that, hey, difficulty is still so low and we're rather avant-garde and ahead of the curve. We can double spend this and then sell it on a decentralized exchange or even then hold and transact only in crypto and never convert to fiat, which would make it very difficult for us to be found. I think that nowadays, the, the simple answer, the, the thin of it, would be that nowadays it's not incredibly profitable and there's better things you could do, especially that the, the ecosystem is, is more mature in that regard. But when the, when the right amount of commitment to acting in a non-altruistic manner manifests, with the right amount of currency, there are some low market cap, and I'll use the phrase low market cap usually, uh, lower market cap coins that could definitely be beneficial to steal. As far as Ethereum and Bitcoin, I do not believe it is. As far so, as top 300 alts, yes, it could. So specifically and, with, let's say, Ether, Jesse, 
in kind of summary of what you're saying, you don't view it as like right now the market cap's 20 billion. If let's say the market cap went to 1 billion, you wouldn't yeah. view it as kind of substantially less secure. They're both given the, the fact that it's so against someone's economic interests to attack the network. It's at a, a relatively similar amount of security at these two different market caps. At 20 billion, there would be a large lack of clear reason to commit a 51% attack. I'll, I'll, I'll try and yeah. succinct. So, but, so, but, but at, but at 1 billion, how, how much would that differ? Well, well, you touch on a really interesting idea by injecting that number into the mix. And that is when one is attacking something that is quote unquote guarded, it implies that something is worth guarding. If Ethereum were to fall to 1 billion or, uh, you know, nearly a 99.4% fall from ATH, if my napkin math is correct, I wonder if Ethereum is even worth guarding at that point and whether security just goes out the window. Um, so that's a really interesting fact. I guess it really depends on your conviction. I think a huge amount of 51% attacks nowadays are based around the idea that you could exchange it possibly for Monero, um, pot, but... Uh, Hopefully there's some appreciation, you know, you can hold on to it and actually make even more money. At that point, I think it would have fallen so much that I, I question what the point of even committing it in the first place would be, as opposed to just manipulating the market with your millions and millions of dollars. I think the, the reason Jack and I are really interested in this number is that, you know, as we've kind of expressed to you before, we're, we're pretty short on Ether from a fundamental perspective, but could imagine you know, given the really strong developer community, if there was like a minimum threshold of once it gets below that, it would not be secure. That might kind of be a different way to look at fundamental analysis than just by looking at kind of ether in the context of MV equals PQ. So I don't believe that there's a threshold minimum where something, you know, <laughs> magically happens where it is, it is no longer uh, value. Um, it is no longer valuable in terms of whether one does or does not commit to such an attack. But I do believe it's more of a gradual phase change. It's almost more of an indicator, sort of like RSI, where it doesn't just you know go from 100 to zero, where there's you know tangible checkpoints where you know one should sell or not sell. I think it's all about indication. I think the lower it goes up until about a billion dollars, the more of an indicator that it is susceptible, and the less of an indicator that one would even want to commit attack against it. It's sort of this sublime equilibrium, is is how I like to think about it. Yeah, that makes sense. So if if they successfully switch to a proof-of-stake model, how does that change the numbers or the types of attacks that could be committed and the cost of those attacks? Now you're uh, you're getting into the good stuff. This is the stuff that, that really interests me right now. There's one massive problem with proof-of-stake right now. Well, there's a, there's a few problems. Ethereum's proof-of-stake remedies some of them. One of them is called a a single shard takeover attack or a 1% attack. And then and another one is called the uh, nothing at stake problem. And this is exclusive to proof of stake consensus based algorithms with the nothing at stake problem. You don't have, you don't lose anything from behaving badly in proof of stake, right? You don't lose anything by signing each and every single transaction, every fork. Um, in fact, if you're a rational actor, which is an assumption that I think we have to make, your incentive is actually to sign everything everywhere because it doesn't cost you anything, right, guys? So it sounds like it'd be a good strategy to work on each and every chain if there was a fork because then you could double spend a digital good. The rational stake problem and the core of that with proof of stakes transition 
or Ethereum's transition to proof of stake, I should say, is that a rational miner will always choose to mine on two chains or more when there's the opportunity. In the community right now, miners who mine on only a single chain are often called altruistic, and miners who mine on as many chains as possible, um, because the rational thing to do, are called non-altruistic. So if you're an attacker, you only need to outpace the altruistic miners to perform your attack. Ergo, it's possible to perform an attack even if you have less than 50%, as long as the non-altruistic miners and the attacker's stakes adds up to 51% attack. A little bit more about that. Basically, in Ethereum proof of work, if you have 70% of people on one chain and a 30% on the other, eventually the 30% chain will be orphaned, right? It will become an orphan chain. In proof of stake, you can have 90% of people on one chain and 90% on the other. And they don't care because they want the most fees. Now, this mm-hmm. could be a problem in another thing called a long-range attack, which all ties in. If you go a few blocks ahead, sign 1% of the network, and you end up with 99% on multiple chains. The problem is, let's say you have a sharded system. And the whole point of sharding is that not every transaction should be on the main chain. If you have 100 shards, if you own 1% of the hash power, you own one shard. This is a really scary thing. And this attack could start if you start mining a side chain a thousand more, a thousand or more blocks behind. Do you have any, I guess, questions for your viewers? For me, I know I just overloaded you with a ton of <laughs> words. Let me start where we just left off with the 1% attack. If someone controls 1% of the mining power for the network, are they sort of solely responsible for one shard or are they just 1% responsible for every shard? No. If you own 1% of the network and there are 100 shards, you would have one shard. And that means that a small percentage of the time, it would be your turn to broadcast the transactions. Now, in a, in a sharding system, the whole phrase, there, there are no more miners. It's actually called, there, there are forgers. And these forgers create something called collocations. And a collocation is really just a shard-specific block. They form what's called collision chains, which are very similar to a blockchain. A really easy way to think about it is there's the parent blockchain in a, riding in a linear way, and then each block can spawn multiple collision chains. Um, and so people can be in charge of that. And this will all tie into something called collator nodes. And you basically gather the data from the shard, and you make the collation, which is, I guess, new colloquium for for a block, and then present it to the executor nodes to execute. Um, by doing that, you get a percentage of the fees. Um, so basically, in a proof-of-stake system to, with Ethereum, to my knowledge, there will be people who will be subjected to a, a fee, an inflation, if you will, to, to move transactions. And that inflation will be paid to the people that choose to stake this sort of debt gain will actually promote the network and reduce velocity while increasing the speed of transactions. If you own 1%, you could attempt to broadcast messages that will eventually outpace the main chain. And that is a very complicated process. But basically, you could completely, in layman's terms, you could completely screw up the validation of the chain by you owning your own small uh, shard. Does that make any sense? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So we're sort of outpacing our child chain ahead of where it can be reunited? So this is where 
scaling with sharding is very hard and very complex. Basically, the question is, how do you send the same input to both the chain and the shard once per period so that the shard blocks will fail validation when they hit the chain? Meaning, if you transfer something off a shard, how do you prove that you no longer have that? Because that's the whole essence of blockchain, right, guys? That with an email, if I send Jack an email because he's uh, tutoring me in poker and I'm a complete novice when it comes to that, I still have a copy of that email. I could actually then forward that to Zach and he has a copy, I have a copy, and Jack has a copy. You cannot send a unique element. In a sharded system, because you're not using proof of work to help facilitate transactions and basically create a situation where you have intensive resources that you must validate and prove that you own, which gives you um, recourse for your actions. How do you prove that something is off the shard and onto the main chain? So how can one who owns 1% of the network not keep double spending? That's, that's the question, right? And right. answer to that, to quote Vitalik himself, um, a man much more intelligent than I, is something called an asynchronous transfer. And this gets a little complicated. But basically, the question is, how can Ether flow from the chain and the shard safely without double spending by one who owns the shard, which would create a 1% attack? And the answer to that is an asynchronous transfer, which step one, deletes the Ether off of shard A, and that generates a receipt, which contains three things, the amount of Ether, the destination of the shard to go back onto the chain, the recipient. And that can all be Merkle-proofed from the state or receipt root. Now, that might sound really complicated, but to keep it pretty freaking simple, there are innate consensus algorithms based in proof-of-stake models that really try to prevent you from double spending as a shard producer. Does that make any sense? <laughs> sure. But how, I mean, and these solutions are effective? These solutions are effective yet unproven. I think the whole reason Ethereum fell, aside from the fact that we had parabolic, you know, new paradigms of growth in the beginning of winter last year, is because Vitalik sagely pushed back proof of stake in Casper an entire year to make sure this stuff works. Basically, the steps are to create a transaction containing the receipt, publish it then to shard B, and verify that the receipt is valid. If we can do this, the route is finalized. And there's then though there's no record in shard B that the receipt is spent. Um, and if this checks, it, it sends Ether to the destination and saves the record. Basically, the idea behind this is that you could create these chains and these pathings that can allow for super small transactions, like buying coffee between a merchant and someone else. You can set up these pathways that will consistently be able to go back and forth without having to interact on the main chain. This is very theoretical. And the truth of the matter is, in proof of work, it's much simpler. Basically, you mine a block, and this consists merely of checking the tr that transactions are plausible, and that the or or originating address has enough of a balance to perform the transaction. Now, one would not typically attempt to double spend if you weren't extremely cognizant of the repercussions because you'd be spending resources for no reason. You'd be, you know, it's prevented by proof of work by forcing all miners that want to include their validated transactions to solve these complicated puzzles that require processing power. People would not do that for zero reward. 
So the whole question here is how do you transition to a resourceless economy? One could simply say that you take SHA-256 and multiply that times the previous hash, your address, and a timestamp, and pray that that number is greater than 2 to the 256 times the current balance, and that generates a transaction. But at the end of the day, it's still all unproven. I do believe from my limited knowledge and limited understanding, it might sound like I know a thing or two, but as with most things, the more you read, the more you realize you don't know what the hell is going on. I think a proof of work system could, could actually function. The whole problem with, or sorry, proof of stake, the whole problem with proof of stake is that how do you ensure a fairly distributed model? And that is the essence of proof of stake, that if we could somehow combine a fairly distributed model where we don't create this oligarchical structure where let's say I have 10,000 Ether, Jack has 100,000 Ether, and uh, let's say a random listener has one Ether, how do we prevent a situation where, you know, the guy who owns the most land has the biggest say. And then do we even want to prevent that situation? Do we want that pure, pure form of democracy to exist? And, you know, that then ties into the whole delegated proof of stake model, which we can get into later. But to answer your question, I think it's going to be a really big shit show. I think it's going to be an absolute shit show where it's almost like this dissolution of the USSR where we have these massive oligarchs who have huge amounts of ether that are staking and possibly even colluding. And there's one answer to that. And would you guys want to know what that answer is? No, that's okay. No, definitely Thank you very not. much for your time. <laughs> the one well, answer- but our, just for our listeners. Yeah, just, just for them. It's called the slasher algorithm. Basically, instead of committing energy with proof of work, you're committing the currency itself inside the system to prove that you're committed to checking and maintaining the security. After you do that, you pass it along to the next guy. It's almost like a giant game of hot potato. Under these mechanisms that Ethereum uses called Slasher, you would actually lose your money if you were to attempt to withdraw your money before. So if two forgers arrive at the same end of a block, two valid blocks on the blockchain exist. And this is generally resolved in a proof of stake system with something called a fork. Typically, the fork will go in one direction and the other chain is orphaned. With these algorithms, slasher algorithm basically says if a miner creates a block on two chains, he will be punished. And they have a really ingenious way of going about that, which is anyone could submit the block from the other chain into the original chain in order to steal the mining reward and penalize the double voter. Basically what happens is you can get slapped around by some random random guy or girl who can then resubmit your previously validated transaction. And that could be a guy who has a lot less of a stake than you. And that a miner will have to make a security deposit so there's a way for penalizing in the case of double voting. The miner then under this algorithm that Ethereum wants to implement has the right to withdraw the security deposit eventually. And eventually, when the deposit is withdrawn, there's no longer an incentive to vote on the long, uh, to vote or not on the transaction, which basically means you have no reason to attempt to double spend. So to me, if any of these viewers are still following all the nonsense that I'm saying, because there's just so many interesting thoughts going through my head at once about this. I'm, I'm sure you guys are the same way. I think we're going to see a black market of people selling their old private keys, which will culminate with an attacker who might single-handedly 
try to acquire these keys to control over 50% of the total stake at some point in history and perform some new type of attack where he could then go back and try and stake a different chain. And that is totally different than proof of work because in proof of work, you probably can't go more than six or seven blocks back. But in proof of stake, you could go a thousand blocks back or 50,000. It's a wild future and the present is pretty crazy itself. Yeah. It's amazing the sort of vulnerabilities that emerge and the patchwork that goes on to solve it. And that might sound very pessimistic the way I just phrased that, but I definitely think that there are exist the proper ways to incentivize various parties. And if not, we have proof of work. So Yeah. Or is that more of like a concurrence with some of these mechanisms that we've been discussing? Or do you have any do you have any specific things in mind? Any alternatives to proof of work? Not beyond what we've discussed here. I mean, I'm interested in reading about, you know, the various consensus mechanisms that your various crypto project here and there proposes, but I think they're mostly very slight variations that are rebranded as a way to push their product. And so I think that if a non-proof-of-work solution emerges in the next year or two, I think it's fairly likely to be from Ethereum. Yeah. Based on their commitment to finding alternatives. Well, you know my opinion on that uh, little project called 0x Bitcoin, which... Wait, before we move on to this, Jesse, I want to ask you, would Ethereum moving to sharding proof of stake, would this make you more bullish, less bullish? How how does that make you feel as as a ETH holder? I think that from a monetary perspective and a human greed perspective, it makes me extremely bullish. I think getting, well, first of all, we would reduce the inflation rate and get it more in line with Bitcoin. Second of all, it would be more of a situation that we observe with fiat currency where when you keep your money in cash, meaning if your money is not invested in a, in a bond, AAA rated, that's getting you three or 4%, you are paying a penalty and that penalty is inflation for the right to utilize your currency and invest in whatever you choose. I think that creating a situation where people are economically disincentivized from keeping their currency liquid, I would, I think that actually ties in with the whole storage of value. I, I know that people say Ethereum is not a currency, but I do believe that it would sort of create a forced hodling where the price would increase and that scarcity would go up. I might be totally off the books here and I'm no professional um, economic advisor, but I do see velocity going down, network congestion going down as well. And forced hodling, I guess, is possibly even the way I'd put it. Having a positive reflection on price, assuming that there are functional dApps. Ethereum is purely speculative right now. What a lot of people don't understand, a lot of people call Bitcoin digital gold. I really do like to think of Ethereum as oil. And I know that's a super primitive and unfair comparison. But if and when Ethereum becomes the backbone of the internet 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever they're calling it now, you will need a little bit of Ethereum to transact and to move transactions. The question will arise of what kind of system we create. Will Ethereum have low value, but tokens based on Ethereum, which have their own you know, unique set of quantifiable relations to the blockchain that Ethereum doesn't have, will those go up in value? Will tokens have low value, but Ethereum will have a lot of value? I don't know. 
I, I can't answer that without feeling like I'm going to look back at this in two years and feel stupid. <laughs> I do believe Ethereum is undervalued. And the reason being, I cannot believe that blockchain in general, which peaked at several hundred billion, if we were to compare that to the dot-com boom in the late 90s and early 2000s, which peaked at several trillion, which is worth tens of trillion in today's money, primarily US driven, primarily only open markets from nine to five when people needed a broker. This is a pre-internet age. You didn't have the ability to just interact directly. And that peaked at you know several trillion, 10 trillion plus in today's money. I think it's actually more like 13 or 14 in, in today's money. You're telling me that that's going to be higher than a system that's 24-7 worldwide in a time where more people have smartphones in Africa than water? And that only peaked at a couple hundred billion? I, I can't believe that this is the end. I think Ethereum worked. I think that Ethereum rose so fast, mostly because uh, of all these scamming, you know, uh, deceitful ICOs. But I don't think that's a reflection of Ethereum as a, as a poor product. I think it did what it was supposed to do. Now, the fact that, you know, interact with smart contracts, the fact that CryptoKitties could crash the network is a whole question about <laughs> scalability. But if you're anything like me and you believe scalability is going to be solved, you have to be a little bullish. You have to be. Well, Jesse, I know you have to run. We really, really appreciate your time. I personally learned a lot about how these scaling solutions are vulnerable, what's being attempted to solve them. You've inspired me to look into this more myself. I want to get to your level for sure. I'm not sure that'll happen, but if I can get if I can narrow the gap, I'll be pretty pleased. And yes, Zach, any uh, any last words? No, yeah, this was an incredibly informative interview for me, Jesse. I'll definitely. It's rare that I listen to you know the podcast episodes we do, but I imagine I'll definitely be doing so in this case, just so I can have a better understanding of you know sharding and what these you know one percent attacks might might look like. I think it's really important whether, you know, you're just an investor or kind of a cryptocurrency enthusiast to to really understand these systems. And like Jack, I'm inspired to, to learn more now. Well, you know, the pleasure is all mine. And I every day try to continue my knowledge. Maybe we could set up uh, some poker theory lessons and uh, exchange some knowledge. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jesse, is there anywhere you'd like our listeners to follow you or check check out what you're up to or not? As of right now, you know, I, I have uh, I have some of my own projects I'm working on. One of them is CryptoCommunityGroup.com. Another one is YouMindCrypto.com. Both of those websites will be expanding rapidly. But I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's not for fame or an attempt to build a following. I'm just an enthusiast. Um, and I really appreciate you guys, two erudite, extremely intelligent individuals. Thank you for your time and thank you for your questions. Our pleasure. Thanks again, Jesse. Thanks, guys. Make it easy.